in terms of a business buyer, it's all about risk reduction. So the, the you know, number one fear is I buy your company and the day I take over, your customers start walking out the door. So with, with contracts in place and the greater the percentage of your revenue that's on a contractual basis, the, not only the higher the value you're going to get for your company, but also your cash at closing will be higher. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 120. Appreciate you tuning back in. Today's guest name is Dave Copy. And he is an investment banker and has been doing this for 18 years in the tech and software space. And the show today was a lot of fun because we went back and forth on what buyers are looking for for value and how to build reoccurring revenue, whether you're a Main Street business or a software business, what is the reoccurring revenue being valued as compared to time and material and projects? We talked a lot about what is a strategic buyer looking for and how a business owner like yourself or any seller should be thinking about the M&A landscape, thinking about how their product and service could fit into a bigger picture of the marketplace, even if you don't want to sell. And I think if there's a big takeaway for this episode is it's just really knowing and working on the right things that build enterprise value in line with any potential way that you want to sell the business so you can make the most amount of money and essentially dictate your terms and conditions. It just gives you more options, whether you want to sell it internally to a third party, to private equity, but you're leveling up your game and your playing field. So that way you're in control. And Dave and I talked a bunch about how to do the business models change and how a business model is also valued, not necessarily just the software, but just about thinking about how to deliver your services differently and really talked a wide variety of the LOIs, the deal negotiation, what the buyers are looking for and how they're actually making their decisions. So overall, just a super fun and educational episode. And I think I've mentioned it in some previous episodes, but uh, GEXP Collaborative and my team has put a ton of work into writing some ultimate guides. So there's one on our website called the ultimate guide on how to value your business. So it's everything about how to value the business, how the different uh, valuation types how to understand how much money you need pre and post closing. And then there's a couple other exit uh, option guides. So there's one on all the different internal exit options that you have and the pros and cons of those. And another ultimate guide on all the external exit options and the pros and cons of those. So we're trying to give as much content as possible for you to level up your knowledge, how to put yourself in the driver's seat of this entire negotiation process and building the business that you want. So without further ado, here's my episode with Dave Copy. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Good morning, Dave. How are you doing? Hi, Ryan. Good. How about yourself? Doing good. So we got introduced by a mutual connection and uh, we started, I started looking at your, your stuff. And I think you were looking at some of the stuff that we're doing and we were just joking around as we uh, were just about to go live. That I think, I think we're going to have a fun interview because <laughs> I think we uh, see the world the same way as far as what uh, grown and selling companies all about. And it sounds like you've got some 
bruises and stories to share to us. Um, but you know, for the listeners that are not familiar with your background, just give us a rundown of like, how did you get into the industry? What, what you know, how did you get to where you are today? Well, my uh, my first sales job was with uh, IBM, and uh, I kind of got the high tech sales bug, and uh, went to another company and um, uh, did well, and really decided that uh, selling for technology companies was going to be my uh, my career. Uh, unfortunately, in technology, as you know, that it's very unstable because <laughs> you know technologies come and go. And so after my fifth either company buyout or, or bankruptcy, uh, I decided to try and find something that I thought would be a little more stable. So I hired on with a uh, small M&A firm in my, in my hometown and trained with him and uh, decided I wanted to represent tech companies and he wanted to represent more uh, what he would call brick and mortar or mainstream type businesses. So I spun off and that was the start of mid-market capital. And what year was that? That was, gosh, about uh, 18 years ago. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, just maybe for some benchmarks for us, how many, how many companies have you bought and sold over the course of almost two decades? We, we average about one and a half a year. We're okay. a small firm and, uh, you know, they, they take, uh, six to nine months to go through the whole process. So it's a, it's, it's a labor intensive, uh, time consuming process. Well, just, and, and I think what we're going to dive into today is you can't, a lot of, a lot of people call and say, Hey, I want to sell my business like tomorrow, right? Which is not really how it works. And I think that, you know, it, you're, uh, you're one and a half. I mean, if you're, if you, there's so many people that have these big, huge shops. That I don't think these owners understand or, uh, you know, some people understand that, it doesn't mean you're going to, if they do a high volume, that doesn't mean that you're getting the good expertise anyways. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that get thrown in front of analysts that don't actually know what they're doing too. And so there's a lot of questions that they need to ask in order to hire the right investment banker. Right. So, you know, one, one of the, what, what kind of tech companies are you representing and what, cause I know for the kind of the agenda of the conversation is you've got a lot, you know, we're, we can dive into the recurring revenue and you've got a lot of, uh, a lot of expertise on like what people are valuing and why, and you know, what, what, is, what is your definition of technology and what have you been seeing over the last few years? Well, we mostly, because of my background, we mostly represent information technology companies and software companies or uh, healthcare uh, information technology companies, generally companies with a high level of intellectual property as a component to their business value. So it's not unusual for us to hear from our uh, clients, uh, well, we want more than a uh, multiple of cash flow. We want strategic value. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, we've seen a, just an incredible move toward the recurring revenue or subscription model. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the very high profile ones are like salesforce.com, which really kicked off the the subscription model. They never had a license model. It was always subscription. Microsoft, uh, within you know, since Sasha Nadella came on board, has converted to that model, and they went through the the growing pains of that. But now they are hitting on all cylinders. Uh, Adobe. I mean, you name it. Every major software company has converted to that. Mm -hmm. And then in the information technology world, it used to be you know, ten, fifteen years ago, they had these folks that were 
project-based consultants and what they called VARs or value-added resellers. So what they would do is they would represent the, you know, Microsoft and Hewlett Packard and IBM, and they would be hired by a company and put together the solution for them. They'd sell the hardware, take a markup on that, sell the software, take a markup on that, and do project-based consulting. Almost all of those firms are converting to what they now call a managed services provider, which basically says, hey, we'll, we'll be your outsourced data processing department. We'll, we'll do hardware as a service. We'll, uh, we'll do help desk. We'll do you know, major projects. But what they are looking for is this monthly recurring revenue. And that, along with EBITDA or cash flow, are really the two major driving valuation metrics that are that we see uh, today. So you know you're ringing on my old world here. <laughs> so it's gonna be it's gonna be fun because you know we were we had with the copier business we had built out the managed IT services and that like there's so many. So there's a couple of ways that I want to un- un- unpack this, David, because one is that you, you've got some good information and you've you've got a book that I want you to kind of uh, mention as well, but like you know, why, I mean, why is the reoccurring revenue so important from, from the owner's perspective, but also the buyer's perspective, but then also, you know, maybe the second part of that was what we can dive into is how to start doing that. Because I think there's a lot of businesses that are just really challenged with how do I actually go about doing that? So maybe let's start from, from the sellers and the buyer's perspective, you know, why is reoccurring revenue so important and how are all those different categories of revenue that you just mentioned, how are they valued differently in the eyes of a buyer? Right. Uh, that, that Ryan, that's a great, great point. You know, the, the reoccurring revenue model is, in terms of a business buyer, it's all about risk reduction. So the, the you know, number one fear is I buy your company, and the day I take over, your customers start walking out the door. So with, with contracts in place, and the greater the percentage of your revenue that's on a contractual basis, the, not only the higher the value you're going to get for your company, but also your cash at closing will be higher. So a lot of people don't realize that very few in the companies in the lower end of the market, you know, small, medium businesses, get bought completely 100% cash at close or completely 100% stock. There usually is a, you know, either an earnout or a seller note or some other contingent factor based on, you know, reducing the, the buyer's risk and reducing their amount of cash that they have to put down um, at closing. So, you know, for a seller, the greater your percentage of recurring, you know, contractually recurring revenue, that reduces the risk to the buyer. And therefore, one, you'll get a lot more interest out in the market. So you'll have more competition for your deal, which drives up the price. As I said, you'll get a higher valuation and you'll get a more favorable terms. So, for example, if you say, I want to stay on with the business for two or three years, if you have no recurring revenue, they're going to want to lock you up for four or five and, and make an earnout four or five years or six years long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gives you a lot more freedom. In terms of turning your business into a recurring revenue model, um, obviously I touched on the the, uh, the software and the, um, the IT services, but let's say you're a florist, for example, and you sell flowers. 
Well, one way to do it would be to go contact the small companies in your area and maybe have a uh, monthly plant exchange service where you come in and manage their plants. Uh, I had a doctor friend who did a concierge model. So he, he cut down the number of uh, patients and was just a very high touch uh, scenario for a fixed annual fee for a patient. You know, any time and materials, uh, kinds of things that you you'd currently do, try and figure out a way to turn those into a, you know, a monthly or an annual contract, like an HVAC, you know, have your winter checkup and, and summer checkup as part of a, of, of a contract. Uh, we even had a, a company that did pool maintenance, bought a pool maintenance software company. So they would go out and sell the software to other pool maintenance companies. So, you know, it's, each business is unique, but, but you really need to try and figure out if you're contemplating selling your business, or even if you're not, it's a better business model. You know, on January 1st, when you turn on the lights, you want to know where your revenue is coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just as stressful for you as it would be for a potential buyer. <laughs> yep. We, we, actually, we actually had a, um, a company that was buying one of our clients that was a, a managed services provider. And they gave us a formula. They actually spelled it out. They said, your, your hardware and software VAR type sales are worth 10 cents on the dollar. Your uh, break fix is worth 63 cents on the dollar. And your managed services contracts are worth $1.27 on the dollar. So it really defined, in my mind, exactly how these buyers are looking at it. They, you know, a hardware and software sale or a sales pipeline or projected sales, that is not very solid if you're a buyer. But having contracts that, you know, have two years or three years remaining, that's a really, really important as a risk reduction strategy. Well, and I, I literally went through that because I was in our old industry and we had, you know, a huge pipeline, a lot of transactions. And then literally it was just, what, what are your contracts? <laughs> they, they like almost skip over all of that right. stuff and go, what's actually, what's actually guaranteed. Right. And um, so, which, you know, I think, and I don't know if you, you see this day where I, 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 I believe that a lot of these listeners are going, I totally agree. Like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of, there's a, there's very few people that would disagree with how important the strategy is. And then it kind of comes down to is, okay, what the heck can I do as an owner and in whatever industry it is, if I'm not in the tech space, how can I start doing this? And I think it's a big challenge, whether it's, you know, in, and I experienced, and I don't know, I don't know if you've kind of followed some of your old clients or potential clients where we went, you know, a lot of people have got, I've watched and I've experienced, and I was actually with a client yesterday trying to go to the break fixed and it is a son of a bitch because you have you're reliant on the big hits for cash flow but if you take that big hit let's say you're making a hundred thousand dollars per software project or per time material per whatever it is that you're doing and you need that gross profit and that cash flow to all of a sudden throw it onto 36 months and you're making two grand a month it just like blows up your entire financial model so i'm curious i'm like what what are some creative things that you've seen people doing as they're going through that or they see those challenges? It, it, it really does in the short term, uh, as you correctly state, Ryan, that it, it, it kind of blows up your cash flow scenario. It's a tough transition, but you know, in at, at about the end of year two, it then shifts over. And so you can see by just, you know, Microsoft's performance for about eight years, it was dead money. If you were an investor, 
And when Sasha Nadella came in and converted them to, you know, subscription model, it took a couple years, but now it's all positive because it builds on itself. And it's basically, they, they used to rely on, you know, I bought my PC and I would get, you know, Windows 7 and I'd use that for 10 years. Right now it's, you know, Microsoft is supplying my email at $5 per person per month. You know, that goes on and on and on and on. And, and at a certain point, you know, the, the cash flow turns much more positive than your old, you know, sell one thing at a time model. Have you seen, um, yeah, not, not, yeah, because it, it's beautiful when it starts to happen. It's just very scary because you have to make sure that you're pricing it right, that you're, you know, selling it correctly, and then you've got the right contracts right. and making sure that you've actually written those correctly. Is there anything that you've seen, uh, like, you know, in the life cycle of when someone, like, if someone were to back in to go, okay, I'm going to want to sell my business at this date, like, where in that life cycle turning into the reoccurring revenue would you see them? Because you, you know they don't want to do it when it's dead money because there is no EBITDA and they don't have you know the tax returns to show what's going on. I mean, I'm curious on that life cycle of where they should kind of start calibrating. Themselves. Yeah, I, I think that uh, you know just kind of a rough guesstimate is somewhere between you know in terms of a pricing model. If you've got a a license or even people are doing hardware as a service now or infrastructure as a service where it's like a rolling lease. But what I've seen is kind of the 28 to 38 month sort of full payout for that, if it were a lump sum, turning it into the recurring model. So mm-hmm. uh, you, you basically have a, um, you know, your, your purchase price, let's say it's a million dollars, you would consider the payoff over, let's say, 36 months. And that would be your monthly rate for that million dollar lump sum. And then mm-hmm. the good part about that is if the technology stays or if that piece of equipment stays, uh, you know, you continue to roll that over and they're continuing to pay you that, that fee. So that's pure profit after that. Mm-hmm. Total side note is, uh, I don't know if you, because you, you keep mentioning the hardware and I think we've got a, a similar exposure to my old industry and the current industry that I'm actually still working with is that there's there's a client of mine called BEI that is trying to really change the copier model where instead of even leasing these where they're it's called IDAS where it's device as a service so it's literally copiers and printers that are just all rolling in well you won't even be able to own them or lease them anymore it's just a rental program (laughs) so like you're just gonna like it's everything on the entire network is just on a monthly payment. Right. Are they are they doing it by like the usage, like per per copy, or are they just well they're not they're they're gonna they're trying to eliminate the cost per copy okay. because essentially they've got all the data to say, okay, here's how much it runs, here's the uptime, here's the parts and the usage and the labor. Here's you should this this piece of equipment should be two hundred bucks a month and it's all included of everything, all the service, everything. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I, I want to buy yep. that. Right. <laughs> is, um, but yeah. Okay. So I, I think, you know, w- when we look at um, companies, Dave, that are not in the tech space, and because you've got a lot of exposure to this, that I think, you know, when you and I were going back and forth prior to the show is you've got some examples of other people getting into it. Is, you know, is there, you know, ideas of building out software or acquiring software companies that might be worth be- and how do the numbers shape like how do the numbers change if someone were to go down the- well it's it's funny because uh 
we over the years we've represented what I would call uh, a number of uh, accidental software companies, and what I mean by that is it's either a you know a, f- a functional type business where they have subject matter expertise, and they go, gee, the software for our industry is terrible. I'm just going to write my own, and so. Mm-hmm they end up writing a really nice piece of software because, you know, they're the subject matter experts. And then they try and convert their business model to, I'm now going to, instead of being a car dealer, I'm going to go out and sell car dealership software. That's a tough transition to make. You know, they're, they're completely changing their business model. The ones that do it well, oftentimes go, wow, I'm glad I'm in this business now as opposed to the original one. (laughs) Because it's a lot more profitable. Mm. So, you know, we've seen that. In fact, uh, we have one client right now that's in due diligence, and that's exactly what they did. They were car dealer guys, and they said, boy, our document management systems are terrible, and we don't see anything out there that we like, and the big dealer management systems don't work. Why don't we develop our own? And they found their software business to be much more profitable than the, the dealership business. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Uh, yeah, and uh, how have you seen? Have you seen any? Which that that that, that makes a bunch of sense. And by the way, like you know, just buyer beware or listener beware is you know going into you know dumping a bunch of money in, into coding into software is very risky, yeah. right? And I've been there myself. And I, I, have you thought? Have you seen anybody like? in the main street or brick and mortar end up buying your clients in order to get into that space and to increase the value of their business or efficiencies? You know, that, that's a tough one because, um, you know, the, the sort of the multiples in the, the brick and mortar space are pretty well-defined and, and not overly generous. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're talking about a software company, those multiples can get to be pretty, uh, pretty high because of the leverage of technology and the, the tremendous profitability, you know, the next, the, the incremental cost for your next copy of uh, Microsoft office is, is almost zero, right? The, the programming has been done. Whereas if you're manufacturing a widget, the incremental cost is basically the, the marginal cost of labor and the marginal cost of capital and the marginal cost of, uh, of resources and inputs. So uh, it, it, it's a little bit of a different model. So, We've found that that you know sort of the traditional brick and mortar folks that you know may want to buy a software company it just it it sort of doesn't fit with their valuation models so they're so they're not they're not winning those deals let's say now they can if they if they decide they want to play in the in the multiple game where software companies are being sold but that's a tough transition. Well, um, a quick question then is: what's, What are you actually like? What are you seeing for the valuations, and how are like how are they getting valued for the, the software companies that are doing this? Well, it's you know there there are all kinds of different categories. You know, in the the, the high profile ones, you know the the ones that are doing AI or or uh, gaming or mobility. Uh, you know, those kind of are off the charts, and it's it's basically uh, what the market will bear. Uh, then you've got other models, which are, you know, what I might call legacy cash flowing software companies that are vertical industry software. Like, you know, I do the, uh, the internal accounting for uh, architectural firms, right? So those are 
more humble and, and are closer to sort of other businesses. They're, they're not, you know, off the charts. They might be a five or six times EBITDA, whereas, you know, you get some of these new um, rapidly growing technology uh, companies and it might be eight times revenue or 10 times revenue. So it just um, just depends. It's very market driven. Well, and and I think that's going to go into a good conversation, but I want to plant a seed for that. I I want to come back to, which is um, someone in the main street buying a software company, because I think there's some interesting things that they can do to, if they're playing their cards, right to increase their value and depending on what their multiple or their exit options or thoughts are. Um, so just re- we'll kind of come back to that, but, you know, going, uh, taking what your train of thought was further is what, who did SAP buy this week? It was like, uh, was it Qualitex or something like that? Um, did you see that? I did not see that. No. So, okay. The business, I was looking at the numbers and I said, Dave, I just laughed. I'm like, my gosh, it's so crazy. So uh, this company was going to go public and SAP swoops in. The company was doing 200 million in revenue, yeah. two, 2 million in EBITDA. Right. <laughs> so right. like barely making any money right. and they got $1.8 billion. Right. Now in, Main Street, in a Main Street bricks and mortar business, that would be five times EBITDA or a $10 million purchase. Yeah, I, I, I remember. I remember years ago, Ryan. I was I was uh, looking at a uh, an acquisition that Johnson and Johnson made, and I remember writing in my blog. I go, I can't justify this purchase. So they bought this company that had forty million in revenue, and were barely profitable, and they paid four hundred million dollars for. So of course I wrote before researching. So I said I can't justify this purchase price. And then, <laughs> then I then I went and researched, and I go, oh, so this company did time release uh, medication. So they had the technology for, you know, making drugs uh, release over time. Well, what Johnson and Johnson figured out is they could extend the patent life of their blockbuster drugs by putting a time release component on it. It made the four hundred million dollars seem like a bargain. So that was a really interesting strategic, uh, strategic value kind of play. Well, in, in, in this, this is going to go into the, the conversation that I, uh, that we were bouncing back and forth with our notes. Is there's the EBITDA play, which and, and there was a very interesting uh, customer yesterday that I was working with that is in the software space, and you know, I just kind of bear with my thought process here. Is like there's as these owners, I think you you kind of have to do a couple things. One is you know, you, you can always fall back on the EBITDA. If you're doing, if you're making a profitable business, you'll always be able to sell it and doing things certainly, you know, certain things right, right on a multiple of the EBITDA. But, you know, like a lot of, a lot of, a lot of baby boomers, and a lot of entrepreneurs, they, they don't think about the exit. I'm not going to think about the exit. I'm like, it's just so, so ridiculous in my opinion, because then they're not looking at the landscape of the mergers and acquisitions and why someone would want to buy their company. So there's like this whole, like, have a foot in like, yeah, make a profitable business, but also build something that someone's going to want to buy and you're, you're solving a problem because then you can line it up with like Johnson and Johnson's customers or something like that. So I don't know. What, what is your thoughts on balancing the combination of EBITDA and strategic sales and building it actually to sell versus just kind of putting your head in the sand? Yeah, I think, you know, there, there's a lot of um, factors that go into, you know, I have a lot, of, a lot of our clients come and say, hey, I want you to sell me for strategic value. And, you know, 
a lot of that is, you know, strategic technology, but some of it can be a business model that's superior to the norm in the business. So for example, we had one company and they used uh, Upwork. I don't know if you know what Upwork is. It's a, it's a uh, freelance network. They used Upwork as their, their appointment bookers. And that was an incredibly successful business model for them. And that turned out to be of strategic value for the buyers of their company. You know, uh, a blue chip account, like, for example, if you've penetrated the federal government, right, you're, you're a vendor to the federal government, that's a very hard process. So some companies will buy somebody that's gotten their foot into that, you know, that maze and figured out how to, how to get those clients. You know, uh, one time we, we said, gee, what's your cost of customer acquisition? In other words, if your sales guy, you know, if your sales guy at quota for a year made $125,000 and sold five new accounts, you know, theoretically your, your cost of acquisition is his annual cost divided by the number of accounts he sells. Well, if you can buy another company with installed accounts at less than that number, that could be a strategic acquisition. Uh, you know, one of the things that we were able to do, again, this is not gap accounting, mind you, but um, on one of them, we had a small company that had a, a great product. Uh, they were very comparable to, you know, the similar product offered by the big company, but the, the buyers of the small company's product go, Hey, you know, you're small. You could be gone tomorrow. I'm going to need a discount for your, for, for us buying your product as compared to the big company. Well, what we did is we sold them to another big company and said, Hey, by the way, look at what their income statement would look like with your pricing power. In other words, if they were owned by you, a big company, they wouldn't have to discount this anymore. On paper, we were able to double the performance of the company. Now, the, the buying company didn't pass the full amount for that, but they certainly gave some strategic value there. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to you know, gather these things that could be leveraged by the buying company, and that's how you position yourself when you're, when you're selling your company. So... And, and what do you think, you, Dave? You know, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. And but it, 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 what I find is, like, think about so these people that call you and they're like, hey, by the way, this is what I want you to do. I mean, if they would have done that five years in advance and it started to like engineer their way towards that, how different it could potentially be. I mean, and I think that's kind of going kind of going back to some of my, some of my question is having a balance between, okay, well, we have to make money, but then I'm also positioning this to make a huge windfall. And like, I don't know if there's, you know, a balance that you see people doing or, you know, you're thinking about selling it to someone, but if, you know, worst case scenario, you're still making money, you've got a good product or, or a company. I don't know if you got any insights on that. Well, I, you know, I think what you want to do is you want to create as much value along the way, as long as you're building your business. So you, you know, somebody said work is hard you know, on yourself as you do on your business. Well, I think you need to work on sort of improving the value of your business besides just, you know, increasing sales. So, so for example, um, you, you want to build content. So if you're a, if you're a, a, a plumbing company, 
you know, why not create a bunch of videos or a bunch of, uh, you know, content for people that want to go out and look at it and they go, okay, I, I recognize these guys really know what they're doing and they're experts and yeah, they showed me how to do it, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go hire them to do that, you know, to, to establish yourself within the industry as a, as a subject matter expert, to go to the conferences and be a speaker, to, you know, do the little things that, that give you a little, uh, you know, a halo of value beyond just, uh, you know, the, the dollars and cents of selling product. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if you're, if the, if, you know, business owners are doing that, they're thinking about value and where they are in the marketplace instead of just collecting their 200 grand a year and just, you know, going off and just chugging along is like they have to kind of have a pulse on the marketplace and what's going on. And I think that will also benefit them when they sit down with these potential buyers. And I know you and I, I want you to, I don't know how you worded it, but you know, when, when a business owner is sitting down and ready to sell their business and what these potential buyers are like, you give it, give us your little, how did you say that you through experience or bare knuckles? Oh yeah. I mean, (laughs) I said, you know, if you, if you're coming in and selling your business and, and you're representing yourself and the guy sitting across the table from you has bought 36 companies, you know, it's like they're bare knuckles brawlers and you, you kind of don't stand yeah. a chance. You know, the way I like to look at it is I don't know if Ryan, you remember you're, you know, coming out and getting your first apartment lease and mm-hmm. you, you get handed the document and I'm sure you're a bright guy and you looked at it and go, Oh my God, why would anyone sign this? And, mm-hmm. but guess what? They, they have the experience and they have the power. And so they write the document to give them every advantage. That's kind of what, what business buyers do. You know, they're experienced. They've been through the wars. They want to take every, you know, eventuality, protect themselves. And quite frankly, they, they write terms that are, can be interpreted in their favor late into due diligence. And, and you know, you end up get, taking a $200,000 haircut without even realizing it. What are some of the uh, the things you've seen slipped into the terms and conditions? Because I think there's a that there's that can't that point can't be hammered into the heads <laughs> of business owners more. Like if I paid like I what did I say yesterday? I was like, yeah, I'll buy your company for two hundred million bucks, but <laughs> I'm going to pay you over two hundred years, and this is right. the terms and conditions. Right. So what are the what are the things that you see? Well, the the, the the simplest one that I see in almost every uh, letter of intent is, you know, uh, and you will, uh, at closing, you will turn over to us a networking capital surplus that's uh, consistent with uh, industry norms. Well, that's just like, okay, that's, you've just given me a license to steal a couple hundred thousand, you know, to be off the market in due diligence for 90 days, and then have their big five accounting firm come back to you and go, oh, by the way, you need to turn over $600,000 of networking capital. Well, where'd you get that number? Well, that's what our experts told us. So you, you have two choices. You can either cave in or you blow up the deal. And that, both of those are expensive. So one of the things you do is you want to define what the networking capital is. So, you know, current assets minus current liabilities, and it will be 200000 And so you tell them how you're going to measure it, and you tell them what the level will be. It's all a negotiation. You know, we get, we get other ones where they have an earnout, and the, the earnout is a, 
what, what I would call an all or nothing. So they go, okay, it's 5 million cash at close, and then here's an earn out over four years, and you have to grow your revenue by 15%. And if you don't grow your revenue by 15%, you don't get any of the earn out. I go, no, you don't do that. You, you do a percentage <laughs> of revenue. You know, you, you uh, put it to a formula. Another one that happens is they do multiple targets in order to earn your earn out. So you have to hit this revenue and this profitability. No, that doesn't work either. You know, because guess what? You've got somebody else that's driving the, driving the car. They have the keys. Uh, what if your corporate overhead allocation is a million dollars a year? All of a sudden, all of your profits have gone away. You didn't control that and you don't make your earn up. You know, so there, there are all kinds of things that, you know, I, but what I would say is an intelligently worded earnout, your your buyer is going to want you to make that, right? Right. because that means you're doing well. Yeah, I was just well, yeah, I, I just laugh because like I mean, that's called bare knuckle brawling right there, right? Where like it's like you just don't know what happened until after the fact, and you're just going, "What in the hell did I just do?" And the the deal momentum ends up make you know forcing people into making really terrible decisions or forced to you know even though they didn't want to but like this uh an earnout gone well is i got a buddy he just closed on this deal and he got all this i mean i don't think i've ever seen a sweetheart deal like this and I, hopefully he'll be on my show at some point but two to two and a half times future revenue wow is what he got I know. Wow. And then if he acquires if he acquires companies, he gets one times or something. So like literally, they, like you know, the company was just like, "Go for it, dude! Like go sell stuff." Right. But he had gotten all this money, other money up front, and so there was a bunch of other things. But yeah, so the earnouts aren't all bad if you negotiate them the way you want to. Yes. <laughs> so what can the business owner do, and uh, what have you seen people do that that have, like have very successful? terms like that when they're sitting down with sophisticated buyers like this because I mean you can't just go in blind well let me let me give you my uh, 30 second negotiation class (laughs) so Um, so I'm 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 talking to my my wife the other day and she says oh our our son uh, you know he uh, he got an offer on the house you saw in his house and she said and they asked for a ten thousand dollar concession and they asked for this to be fixed, this to be fixed, this to be fixed, and this to be fixed. And, and he said no on all of them, and they took the deal. And, man, my chest was puffed out. I'm going, man, that's my boy. He can really negotiate. <laughs> and then she says, yes, but he had four other offers. So there's my 30-second there's my negotiating class. If you have mm-hmm. other offers, you are a much better negotiator. So, for example, we had this company that was well in demand from the buying community and we provided you know we had like eight bidders down at the end we provided counter proposals and the counter proposals were pretty rich in other words you know they offered eight million dollars and we came back and said it's eleven and a half million so the guy's going eleven and a half million I said well I'm either a hell of a poker player or we got a lot of competition out there <laughs> and you know, that, that's the key is, is you know, uh, the, the problem with being a business owner and processing your own sale is, I'll, I'll use another term as, a, you know, a bare knuckles brawler. I say, well, if you're doing that and you're going against a private equity group that has bought 200 companies over their lifetime, it's like facing Nolan Ryan with a wiffle ball bat. You're probably <laughs> not going to do very well. 
<laughs> so so the, the other thing with, with you know, uh, owner selling it himself is that's a full-time job and he already has a full-time job. And because of that, he's going to process his offers serially. In other words, he's going to do one at a time and he'll follow that one through. And then if that doesn't work out, he'll then start processing another one. And he'll follow that one through, but you have no competition and no way to, to sort of leverage the the buyer. I mean, when was the last time you walked into a car dealership, and and you look at the sticker price, you grab the salesman, and go, okay, write it up. <laughs> <laughs> that just doesn't happen, right? Right. You you pull up Google and you show them seventeen other cars that look right. exactly the right. same. Right. Do this. Right. Now that that's way easier for a car than a business because businesses are uh-huh. so unique. You know, cars and houses are pretty pretty easy to value. Right. Mm-hmm. Here's how, the number of bedrooms. Here's the neighborhood. Here's the school district. You know. Here's the, the age of the roof, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all pretty uh, pretty standard, and you get pretty close. But you know, as you said with your uh, your deal where they got two times future revenue, wow, <laughs> where'd they come up with that one? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, but, but I, and I agree with you that the businesses are in, I think that's what you and I and a lot of people in this industry are trying to do is trying to make it fairly consistent. And, you know, you and I are both talking about John Warlow and the value builder system. And there's certain things that are coming out there these days and say like, no matter what business or what industry, you have to do these things to have repeatable cash flow. And so I'm curious in like these people that you're getting eight times, you know, eight different people, what is the competition of what are they what are all these people drooling over for these businesses? Um, well, you know, the, as, I, as uh, we talked about a great deal here, the first primary thing that they liked is, uh, you know, this last one, almost 100% of their revenue was contractually recurring, right? They have them on their, they have the corporate credit card every month. It just gets automatically charged. And uh, that's, you know, uh, a very consistent, consistent business. The, the other thing that we, we saw was the ability to take a company that's in one vertical and move them to multiple verticals. That's really key is, is you know, you get, you get a small company and they have limited capital. You know, you, you ran a family business. You know, you pretty much stick to your knitting unless you get a capital infusion. But, you know, you get bought by a big company and let's say uh, you're doing document management for car dealers. Well, you bring in a private equity group that's got all this capital and all these connections and they go, yeah, we want to do it for car dealerships, but then we want to expand to uh, home health care and then we want to expand to medical claims processing and then, you know, and so you take a a business that goes to one vertical and then you you add additional verticals. You know, another thing they can do is expand geography. So if you're if you're in the New York City area, uh, why wouldn't that business model work in Chicago, Washington, D.C., you know, Cleveland, Ohio, et cetera? So if you've got a strong business model that can be duplicated and all you need is additional capital and resources, uh, those are, you know, again, strategic value can be, you know, you've, get, you've got a really cool technology, but strategic value can be, hey, I've got a business process that's awesome. I've got a sales process that's awesome, right? I've had companies buy smaller companies because they go, wow, you run your sales force so much more efficiently than I do mine. The value in your company to me is you've got a better sales process. 
I'm going to implement your sales process on my big sales force, improve the, the performance of that. And I've just paid for your entire company just with the improvement of my performance of my sales force. And, and I think you hit on a bunch of really good points, David. And, and a couple of things is that one is this is why business owners need to think about where they have value all the time and then how it relates to the market and where they're going. Because otherwise, they, like if, they, if that person knocked on the door and that person knows why they're buying them, but this person has no idea why they're going to be purchased and they get this random number, they, they don't know that they could have potentially got three times more for their business because they didn't do enough due diligence understanding why that person's actually even interested. And I, I see that all the time where they say, oh, you know, and then they're like, holy crap, I guess I could have, you know, it wouldn't have been a multiple lead there or whatever if I would have just been paying attention. But, you know, also it is, Dave, it, going back to when I was saying earlier on, you know, when you're talking about the strategic verticals or expanding or whatever is like, if you think about maybe like a, you know, mainstream business that doesn't have, you know, reoccurring revenue or a software or whatever. I mean, I think that there's a huge argument that if someone is willing to pay the, the, the value and seize it and potentially is driving towards an exit or growth, depending on where they're coming from, is if they have, if they have a big customer base or different industries or different verticals, if they bought a software company, they could immediately deploy that to their customer base as well and cross-pollinate. And then the whole machine, instead of getting a three or four times X, I mean, they can get a significant value if they're looking at doing all that and you know landing it on a private equity or something like that. So I do think that there's a way that, because otherwise they'd have to build it themselves, which is just a big pain in the butt. Right. Well, you know, uh, a lot of people might not think a restaurant would be a subscription model. Okay, so there's a, uh, a, a restaurant that was started in the Chicago area and we love it because it's a restaurant that has a wine club. Right. And so you, nice. you sign up for two or three bottles a month. And then of course you probably go there to pick up your bottles and then they have wine tastings where, you know, you go there and then they serve dinner and you can have your wine that you bought at retail served to you at dinner. So instead of paying, you know, $65 for a nice bottle of wine at dinner, you're paying $22 plus you've got the wine hmm. club membership. I mean, I thought it was a brilliant business model and, and they've been able to expand to, you know, eight or nine other cities. So, you know, again, they didn't have brilliant technology. They just had a great business model idea. Well, isn't it, it's, it's so, no, that is, that is awesome. I sign me up. Um, is I think if someone has customers that are paying them for something, there's a way for them if they just think differently and it's, you know, it's a lot of, it's definitely cognitive work and or potentially, you know, other you know, strenuous work to, to build it all up. But like, it's so worth it because you have people paying you money. Just think about how to deliver different things differently. And like the, the, the return on your thoughts could be huge. I com completely agree. You know, I mean, there's, there's brilliance in business models. So you know, you, you think back to, uh, you know, the, the golden arches, right? McDonald's. Well, they figured out how to do hamburgers quickly and cheaply and quality control. And that, you know, turned out to be a dominant franchise for our lifetime. You know, if you, mm -hmm. if you've got a main street business and you have excellence written all over it by, you know, your systems, your business model, your approach, you know, your procurement process, 
whatever it is that somebody could, you know, with, with more capital could, uh, could leverage, you know, those are elements for getting strategic value for your company. And, and you actually, Ryan, earlier you mentioned is guys try and figure out a way to articulate what that, you know, research who the buyer is and articulate what the fit of your company is to that buyer and how they could leverage your assets. You know, your business sale is the, is the most important sale you'll make. You know, if you're a good salesman, sell your company that way. Right. And, and pay attention to it. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so um, you wrote a book recently and what, what, give us a little bit of the, the overview of the book and um, where the listeners can find it. Well, um, I, I'd like to share, this is kind of, you know, I, I'm kind of an old dog and learning new tricks, but over the years I've written about a hundred articles and they're really taken right from deals, right? You know, here's what happened mm-hmm. on this deal. Here was a letter of intent that we got that had all these hidden uh, things. Here was an earnout. you know, all of these were elements of, you know, our business and we would put them in the blog and, and at a certain point I go, wow, I've got a lot of content here. Uh, I think I'm going to write a book. So I used a editor and illustrator. I, I went to Upwork and uh, hired a guy to, to edit it and, uh, and do, the, do the graphics and then uh, put it on Amazon Kindle. And then one of my um, guys in the industry, an M&A guy, calls me up. He says, hey, I see you've got a, a book on Kindle. Get a paperback. And I said, why would I do that? He says, it's the best thing I ever did for my business. I said, what do you mean? He says, I go give talks at these industry events and I hand out my book. And when they're going to sell their company, guess who they come to? Well, you know, in the old days, you publish a book, you have to go find a publisher and then they have a minimum run, you know, so you're looking at 10 or 20,000 bucks. Well, Amazon bought this company that's publish on demand. So in other words, every time somebody orders a paperback, they actually print it out and send it. Now they take the lion's share of the, of the fee, but you know, my objective with the book is to help business owners. And secondly, is if, if they want to hire somebody, they, they're going to hire the guy that wrote the book on it. So the, the book is called uh, Selling Your Software Company, An Insider's Guide to Achieving Strategic Value. And that's quite a mouthful, but it, it really applies to, to any company. I, I just happen to have, you know, that's I specialize in software and IT. But, you know, it's about positioning your company for strategic value. You know, find those, those nuggets that, that will appeal to a larger company with a bigger capital structure and more resources. The, the other part, you know, probably a third of the book is how to defend your value when you're going through due diligence. You know, it's, mm-hmm. there's a, uh, on my soapbox a little bit here, but there's, there's sort of a, a perverse view out there uh, in, in the private equity group that says anything we can do to win, uh, that's fair. And so the, the modus operandi is they come in with a, with a high bid, a letter of intent, when the letters of intent are, are qualified, meaning they're non-binding. They're just a statement of, you know, if we're going to commit resources to doing due diligence, here's what we're going to pay for your company. And then they spend the next three months hacking away at that value. They hire the accounting firms and they do a, what they call a quality of earnings report. Well, <laughs> My, my view on a quality of earnings report is 
how can we attack the value of your company and bring in our experts to justify it? And, you know, so it's, it, you, you went through that, I'm pretty sure, in your business sale. Yeah, and that's why I have a little note too. That's why I've told you know the, our listeners and owners that they do that stuff ahead of time. So it's, it's essentially everything that you can do to pretty much switch the power dynamics. And you should be telling the PE firms what to do, is my opinion. Well, the you know, wh- what you do is is during the process, you know, before you sign a letter of intent or dual sign a letter of intent, that's where you do your negotiations. You, you do your heavy negotiating mm-hmm. before you take yourself off the market. You want them to right. define what the networking capital is. You want them to define exactly how the earnout is calculated. You want them to define this and that and this. And so if you do a very tight letter of intent with a, and it's really important to communicate just how much in demand you are, meaning, hey, there are other buyers out here. And if you misbehave, we're pulling it off the market and taking it to them. That's really your own, yep. only leverage. And so, you know, the key is one is, is getting that value sort of at, at the beginning of the letter of intent process. But, but really, a lot of the hard work is, is during that three months of your value being under attack, you know, how do you maintain and translate what you got in the letter of intent and have that actually translated with the same terms and conditions in the purchase agreement? I, don't, I think that's, I think that's a, the biggest surprise that business owners find out well and, and what, what's interesting dave is like I, I think if you take everything that you just said and you actually mentioned something in the emails going back and forth before we got on the show is is if you if, if an owner is thinking and the, the listener says okay i'm going to be doing this over the next few years like if i learn this stuff i kind of like level up my game and i understand what everybody's what, what the process is going to look like like there are 6,000 private equity firms in the U.S. right now. And there's so many people that want to buy businesses that if they've even done half of a decent job building a decent business, you should be able to dictate the terms and conditions and have a bunch of buyers. And what did you, what did you like, I'll, I'll give it to you because I think I know what, what it was, but I get the same thing where I have private equity firms and buyers call me all the time. Like, do you have any customers for sale? Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> give the analogy that you gave in the, in the, in the notes. Well, I'm- Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, I get contacted all the time by private equity groups, and they go, "Okay, I want you know a, uh, a fragmented <laughs> business. I want a cash flow positive. I want it EBITDA at least two million. I want it to be defensible. I want it, to, you know, like a Warren Buffett description." And I go, "Yeah, you and five thousand other PE groups." I said, "That's like going to a going to you know draft a quarterback." And I say, "Well, I want somebody who looks like Peyton Manning." Well, it, it, even even if I ran that football team, it'd be pretty hard for me to screw that up if Peyton Manning was my quarterback. So, <laughs> I know it's a, like, and I get it all the time. So I think there's there's a couple takeaways there, though. Don't you think, Dave? Was like one is that if if a listener like, do these things, because you will literally be the Peyton Mannings, because no one else is doing the hard work, and there's that many people out there that want these kind of companies. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, buyers don't want commodity type businesses. They don't want to. They don't want to have to grind in the dirt to to capture business by taking another penny off the price of their product. I mean, they they want something. Uh, there was a book written. I I thought it was very cool. It's called the Blue Ocean Strategy, and uh, mm-hmm. they talked about don't don't fight in that, you know, don't scrub around in the dirt for those nickels, reinvent the business model. And one of the ones that, that I remember they used as an example was Cirque du Soleil. 
And, you know, mm. the, the circus was dying and it was, you know, had all these negative things where the animal activists they didn't like the way they were treating the elephants or the lions. And you had all the stars that you were trying to, and Cirque du Soleil just completely rewrote the book and they had no competition and the pricing was off the charts, uh, you know, so, so, you know, what's attractive to buyers is things that have moats around them, things that are difficult for somebody else to duplicate. You know, and again, you need to find those things out about your business that you do. And if, if, for example, getting blue chip accounts, you know, it's, uh, you know, growing up in the Chicago area and selling, uh, it's not easy to penetrate a Caterpillar tractor or a John Deere, right? Every vendor in the world is after them. Well, if you've got, um, if you've got a foothold in those, those accounts, you're going to be valuable to a large company buyer because it's way easier to sell additional product into an existing account than it is to open a new account. So those blue chip accounts, if that's your strength, you know, that's what you ought to be selling to the, to the buyers of your business. And make them sign contracts. Like, and, and so get the, get, go get those and then do the hard work to get, right. to get the contracts. I just got out of my, yeah, she was on my podcast, uh, Vicky Report, and she, and she, she spent two years because they they had a bunch of big blue chip accounts, and there was a lot of you know just kind of time and material projects, and they went and they got like three year contracts signed, and she just crushed the value of the company. So she spent you know a couple of years doing really hard negotiating with these people, but then it was just amazing what she ended up doing with the business. So. Dave, as we're kind of wrapping up, what are, you know, is there something, you know, we talked about a lot of different things, something that you want to highlight, or if there's a, you know, maybe something that we didn't touch on that you want to leave with the listeners? You know, it's, it's very interesting, you know, since we published our book, um, and by the way, that strategy worked. So any business owner out there, if, if you, <laughs> if you have the content and want to publish a book, the, the barriers to being a published uh, author are, have been completely democratized. I mean, it is so easy. I was blown away. So if you have content and you like to write, uh, that certainly is a, is a good strategy. But one of the things that has happened is our, our inbound traffic because of that book has gone up, you know, threefold or fourfold. The most amazing thing that I found was we would get calls from these guys and they go, Hey, I got a letter of intent from a buyer. I need your help. And for my first 14 years in business, I'd go, yeah, well, the best way I can help you is we'll do a full M&A engagement. I'll throw them into the mix. We'll leverage them against people. We'll do a soft auction and we'll sell your company for a ton of money. And they'd go, nope, I just want to see how this one plays out. And it was tremendously frustrating to me because in my mind, I knew they were going against this gauntlet, you know, because the bid is going to be a low ball. The bid is going to have all the contract, like your apartment lease, in favor of the buyer. They're going to attack your value during due diligence, and you're either going to blow up the deal or take a big haircut. So that was my sort of view of, and so I said, well, I can't. I see all, I, that, uh, all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't help you then. So uh, then what I would do is say, okay, um, I'll give you a carve out. So if the, if the, uh, unsolicited buyer is the one that buys you after we throw them into a regular M&A deal, we'll give you a huge discount on our success fees. And that met with a little bit of success, but not really. 
So what I did recently is I said, okay, you can hire us on an hourly basis to do letter of, of intent consulting. And that is exactly what they wanted. We, got, we launched the service while I was on vacation, actually, in March of this year. We've got seven new engagements of guys that had letter of intent, and they wanted help processing that one letter of intent. And remember I talked about the importance of competition? Well, what we do is we sell companies. So the buyer, when we get involved, they don't know if we've got other buyers. We're just we're trying to provide that backstop. And so a lot of times these are just low ball offers and, you know, they hire us for four or five hours and the guy goes away when he finds out it's going to be competitive. Sometimes the deals go through and we help them save money on, you know, networking capital adjustments or earnouts or, or whatever, but at least we're providing a service that the market wants. So that's been a, a a big learning over the last couple of years for us and a very positive one. That's fantastic. So if the listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Well, uh, our website is www.midmarkcap.com, M-I-D-M-A-R-K-C-A-P.com. My email address is D-A-V-E-K-A-U-P-P-I at midmarkcap.com. Or they can pick up the phone and, Occasionally, I answer, 269-231-5772. Dave, I absolutely had a blast. Oh, go ahead. a book on Amazon called Selling Your Software Company, yep, yep. An Insider's Guide to Achieving Strategic Value. And again, it's, it's for software companies because that's our main focus. But, you know, 80% of the lessons in there apply to anyone selling their business. Well, and, then, and again, like we were talking about, even mainstream businesses can learn a lot from that or potentially acquire. So I think it's definitely worth the read. And we'll have all these links in the show notes. And it was an absolute blast having you on the show, Dave. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Hope you liked that episode. I had a blast talking with Dave. I think if there's a couple big takeaways for the listeners and for you to really just be paying attention about what is it that you're doing? If you're waking up every single day and understanding how to drive enterprise value and how to understand what the value of your business is strategically in the marketplace, there's nothing better that you can be doing. So if you're waking up, if you're fixing things, if you're in the day-to-day, you need to get out of that. You need to invest in people and processes to get you out of that, to pay attention to the big picture. Because one, you'll create a business that doesn't rely on you and you'll be able to actually collect distributions without having to work. But B, you're going to understand that you're doing the right things to maximize the company's value, understand what's going on in the marketplace. So that way, when the time is right, you could potentially sell to a strategic competitor and or you can start the transition internally or get the exit option that you want. I just really believe that you have to be paying attention to this stuff all the time. And if you, as you heard Dave say, it's a brutal, brutal bare knuckle brawl when you're out there. And if you're planning on doing this and not paying attention and not educating yourself, you're going to be taken advantage of and you're not going to be maximizing your outcomes, whatever those ideal variables of success are for you. So please go on our website, research on the the ultimate guides, look, dive into those, listen to some of these other podcasts, call me, call my team, any questions that you have, we can point you in the right direction. And just as a little note, we're going to be doing some live group workshops, uh, educational sessions starting in 2019. So just be aware that those are coming down the pipeline. So if you enjoyed the podcast, go on to iTunes, give me a rating. Otherwise, I will see you next week.